This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober, mindful, minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We've been in a series in 1 Peter. And as we see in the series of 1 Peter, we're called elect exiles, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We're in this, as this identity, as this identity of elect isles, we're called to submit, to live a life that demands questioning, to endure suffering, and to love each other well in community. This passage further tells us how to live on mission. In this mission, we have an enemy. So we're going to start with the obvious. The scripture says here in 1 Peter that there is a devil. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In the Bible, the terms used for the devil are often terrifying. A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. A great red dragon, the strong man, the god of this world, the prince and the power of air. It's very clear that the Bible talks about the devil as a supernatural personal force of tremendous evil and power. Now, I start with the obvious because in this day and age, the idea of the devil is not so obvious. One of my favorite quotes from the 90s, one of my favorite movies from the 90s, a movie called Usual Suspects. And there's a quote in it, one of my favorite quotes of all time, and it says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. Kaiser Sose, that's right. Anybody else? Like that? He's gone. Nobody's old enough, right? Come on, guys. (laughs) Thank you, Gina. I mean, how diabolical. The ultimate strategy. The enemy wins when he convinces you that there is no enemy. Honestly, this is going to be sad, but it's kind of the way I play Settlers of Catan. All right? This is true. I act like I'm no threat. I often talk about, oh, my, man, where I'm located, my numbers are just terrible. I'm never going to get the resources that I want. And I'm kind of like, oh, man, look at that guy. How many points does that person have? Often I say stuff like, Gina's going to get the largest army. I mean, and that person's going to get the longest road. I'm just, I'm, I act like I'm no threat. Like, I'm just here to help you guys out. And then I like to come in at the very end and swoop in and get like, largest army, longest road, boom, it's over. <laughs> my friend, I, true story, this is actually very accurate. My friend actually calls me the devil of Catan. <laughs> that, that is the actual name for me. Now, I told Gina, I said, I'm going to use this as an illustration. I said, is it wrong for the pastor to compare himself to the devil? I'm like, I'm still going with it. (laughs) I mean, that's what I do. I like to act like I'm no threat. I like to kind of act like I'm here to help you out. Act like, like, we're just playing a friendly game of Catan, but I have to win. (laughs) 
And that's what I do. Like, oh, well, Lawrence, oh, he can just, we should trade him that ore. It's okay. He's no threat. And I like to swoop in at the very end and win. And that's exactly what the devil does. It's, he, 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 he's, he comes in like he's no threat. He convinces the world that he doesn't exist. One of the great advances in tropical medicine came when researchers discovered how malaria was spread. They'd been trying to treat the disease for a long time, but it seemed kind of hopeless. As fast as you helped one patient, three more were getting the disease. One day, someone realized that it was the mosquito, which, which, of which there are millions, trillions, especially in low-lying, damp tropical regions. Once they realized what the real enemy was, new steps could be taken, such as draining the swamps where mosquitoes were breeding, um, inventing new kinds of netting. Um, so many of these other options were available now once you knew what the enemy was. Malaria is still very unpleasant, but it's far less of a problem now that we know what's causing it. For most of the time in this letter that we've been looking at in 1 Peter, it talks about persecution. It talks about suffering. And part of it could be simple as like persecution might be sneering or being mocked or made fun of. But other times it seemed huge. Sometimes as we see later actually after this letter is written, it's institutional. It's governmental. Nero comes into power in the Roman Empire and instills incredible persecution to the Christians. And easy would it be for the Christians at the time to say, no, 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 it's the government. That's the enemy. Or it's the people who mock us. That's the enemy. It's the unbelievers. It's, it's the Gentiles. These are the enemy. That's the dangerous thing about Satan, who is our real enemy. See, we need to understand that the enemy is real, that the enemy is serious, and the enemy, enemy is dangerous. Peter uses the image of a lion, a roaring lion looking for someone to swallow up. The word Peter uses is, far more, is much more than just simply eat. It's literally gulping down in one mouthful. It's a terrifying image. And so the, the response for, the, for Christians is to not soft-pedal idea of spiritual warfare, not chalk it up to just sinful people or bad institutions, but to understand that we have an actual enemy. See, here's the deal. Here's what we don't realize. We don't think we have an actual enemy because so many of us don't realize we have an actual mission. Do you guys hear that? Oftentimes we dismiss the enemy because we don't realize that there actually is a mission. We're actually called on mission. God calls us to be instruments of kingdom advancement by making disciples. So then the enemy is going to exist. What is he going to want you not to do? He's going to want you to not make disciples. It's a very simple equation, right? We need to understand and face the reality that there is an enemy and not look at non-believers, not look at those who mock you, who curse you, or who persecute you as the enemy, but Satan as the real enemy. But there's another extreme when people are confronted with the idea of Satan. They give him often way too much credit. Some have this kind of unhealthy fear. They see the devil behind everything. You know, they're, they're always afraid. They're, they're doing exorcisms on everything. You know, they're like, ooh, that lamp. Cast out the demon of that lamp. You know, there's this unhealthy, unrealistic fear that they see the devil everywhere. Um, the kind of this superstitious idea. There's a quote from a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. And he says this, If men hear a noise at night, they cry, The devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they, kept, but they carry the devil around in their very hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He's setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? 
run from them in terror. Do you see this point? We like to give to Satan way too much credit when we realize the footholds that we give him are actually often so inside our own hearts. C.S. Lewis said when writing about his world-famous book, The Screwtape Letters, have anybody read The Screwtape Letters? It's about this older senior devil kind of giving advice or writing letters to this younger devil. And in it, he talks about this idea that he loves this idea that some people can dismiss the idea of the devil because they think it's ridiculous, the image of a little person with horns and kind of tight red pants on. Other people become so fascinated by the devil that they think of little else and suppose that every ordinary problem in life or difficulty in someone else's personality is due to direct devilish intervention. Lewis calls us to the kind of this, steer this path between two extremes. He's literally saying, this is what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to fall into one of these two extremes. He wants you to either think that there is no devil Or he wants you to think the devil is everywhere, that you're so afraid of him, and that he is behind every little thing, so you don't actually look into the heart motives and the footholds that sin has in your life. And where we're supposed to be, where we fit, is so often, and most of you are going to hate me because I say this all the time, is where we fit is not in either of those extremes, kind of, but right in the tension of it. Right? This, This weird, beautiful tension that comes often in all of Christian life is that not being unaware of the power of the devil, but at the same time not being afraid and giving him credit where he doesn't deserve any credit. Knowing who your enemy is. So how should we view the devil and deal with the devil? Ordinarily, the Bible says the devil has a foothold in you through your sin. It's the open door to your heart and life. Therefore, the Bible insists again and again that the devil and your sin are bound up together. So in other words, to deal with the devil is to deal with your own sin. So, the devil works on our own heart sin. So let's see this here. How do I get this from this passage? In verses 5 and 6, it says this, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. The enemy, the devil, is looking around. He's about to devour you. So is Peter in this sentence, is he changing topics, changing the subject, going from being humble to the devil? No, he's combining it into one idea, that it goes hand and hand together. Just like in Paul, and it says in Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down in your anger, no, ask for no bitterness, no resentment, don't let the devil have that foothold. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, don't let young Christians or kind of new believers be in positions of authority because of pride. He says he can fall into the snare of the devil. There's a direct correlation between pride and anxiety and the work of the devil. He first says, close yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Secondly, he says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Pride and anxiety are two sins that are often the foothold, the entry point, the way the devil grabs a hold of you. So when you address that, if you want to resist the devil, then you try to resist the open footholds in your life. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? So let's look at them really quickly, really briefly. First, let's look at pride. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. What does this tell us about pride? 
And there's pride all throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, you see, if when you hear the story of the account of how Satan first fell, right? It was an issue of pride. I can be like God. I'm, I'm better than this. Or even Adam and Eve. You know, don't, don't you want to know what God knows? Don't you want to be like God? Pride is defined as any resistance here, at least, any resistance to the grace of God. Pride is that which refuses the grace of God. It blocks the grace of God. It says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace doesn't flow to the proud. Pride is a block to grace. There are numerous times, types and forms of pride, but I'm going to focus on two different forms of pride. Of pride. We're talking about the gospel of grace and what that looks like. And what a gospel of grace looks like is that you become a Christian the moment that you can say, with your heart, you say, you know, God, good deeds, the life I live, that, will, that does nothing for me. But instead, I need Christ to save me. I need to be saved by grace and not through works. This is what makes you a Christian. The prayer of a Christian's heart is this, God, I confess that my brain, my philosophy, my theological understanding, my abilities or my popularity or my wealth or anything that I can earn in this life, it's, it's not enough. It's tainted. There's something wrong with it. It's just not good enough. It's, there's nothing that I can do to earn anything. But in Jesus, his death, his life, in his death that I should have died, in the life that he lived that I should have lived, he's done what I couldn't do. And because of the work of Jesus, me, a sinner, I can have his life, his reward, his identity. See, the gospel of grace is that we can rest and know that what God, what Jesus has done is now our credit, that we can now say Jesus in our place. And this is spelled out as an act of faith, but here's the thing. Most people have two forms of pride when they face the gospel of grace. One, one form of pride when they face this kind of, this incredible gospel of grace is this. They say, I'm good enough on my own. Right? One type of people is like, well, you know, I live a pretty good life. I help the poor. I've done a lot of good deeds. I can earn my way. I work really hard. You know, um, I've just done a lot of good things. God can't be, I'm not that bad. God can't be that mad at me. But the other, the other way of the proud of faces this gospel of grace is this. It says, wait, wait, that's just, that can't be right. That's too easy. They say, I, I know I'm really, not that well I should be, but don't I have to earn it? Like, that can't be right. I have to, I have to work hard to get it. I'm, I'm terrible, and God, God can't receive me. I mean, do you know the things that I've done? It can't be free. I have to do something to get it, right? There's no way. In other words, one hand, grace is rejected because they seem to be saying, I'm too good, I don't need grace. And the other hand, grace is rejected because people are saying, I'm too bad, grace isn't good enough for me. Don't you think that those are both pride? Because pride is anything that resists the grace of God. Superiority com complexes or inferiority, inferiority complexes are both pride because they both resist the grace of God. Can I tell you this, people? If the grace of God doesn't thrill you, it's pride. That's what pride is. Anything that resists the grace of, of Christ and the idea that God loves you today completely and freely, not because of anything you did to deserve it. And it's not because you did good enough to earn it and not because you're so bad that you can't do anything to get it, but because of who God is. If that doesn't completely thrill you, then you are absolutely suffering from pride right now. 
It takes an inferiority or superiority form. But humility is the opposite. Humility takes a completely different form. I've heard it said that humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I'll say that again. Humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. A humble person is so satisfied with the grace of Christ, satisfied in their standing, in their position, that they're not thinking about themselves. A humble person is the one that stands before the grace of the gospel of God, so floored and amazed by the work of Jesus that they don't think, oh, I'm too good, I don't need it. And they don't think, I'm so bad, I, can never, I have to work harder to deserve it. So how do you do that? How do you face down this pride, this foothold of the devil in your own life? It says in the scriptures, it said, you clothe yourself with humility. Clothing is something that you actually put on, right? You clothe yourself. You, you, you put on clothes. It's not automatically naturally there. You're not automatically born with clothing, I don't think. Josiah wasn't. That's something you have to do. You have to put on clothing. You have to say, you don't just kind of wait around and say, boy, I, I wish one day I could be more humble. No, you make it, you remind yourself of the grace of Christ and you act in accordance with it. You, you put it on yourself and you say to yourself, why does that person annoy me? Why am I irritated by this? Why, do I, why am I acting in this manner? And you, you look at the heart of yourself and you remind yourself, guys, in whatever circumstance that I am forgiven, I am loved, this is who I am, I am a beloved child of God. Why do I care about standing? What do I care about prestige? What do I care about anything else the world has to offer? I'm known, and I'm loved, and I have purpose. That's what you say. You say, you remind yourself, you put that on, like you're putting on a hat, like you're putting on shoes, like you're putting on your clothes. You literally put it on to protect yourself, right? Very much like you're putting on the whole armor of God to fight against the attacks of the devil in Ephesians 6. You put this stuff on, the identity, the reminder of who you are. I'll give you an example of this, honestly, is that for me, it's kind of weird as a, when you, like for all throughout my 20s, I was a single guy, okay? And as a single guy, the, the relationships with girls, like, you get, like it's, it's not the easiest thing. It's like, you know, you get nervous. You're like, hey, I'm, hi, my name's Lawrence. And you meet a girl and she's all like, you get awkward, you're nervous around girls. You're kind of like, you know. But something happens when you know that you're loved radically and you know that this incredible woman, for some strange reason, loves you and thinks you're awesome all of a sudden, I can walk around I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but that's my wife, and that must mean I'm pretty stinking awesome. <laughs> guys, you put that on. Do you guys understand this? That God of the universe sent his son to die for you. That he was, took all the pain, all the suffering, all the guilt, all the judgment upon himself for you. He looks at you and says, my beloved child, yeah, you're pretty awesome. And you put that on. You face life and you say, with that on, with this on, with this armor on, with this on, Satan, whatever. I won't let you in. I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing. I mean, honestly, I did nothing that was worthy of it. But it was given to me. And you put that on every day and say, okay, 
This is who I am. Guys, people often mistake pride as like this kind of like when you, this inferiority that you think, oh, well, the opposite of pride needs to think that you're just a terrible person all the time. No, that's pride too. That's just thinking of yourself all the time. Pride is thinking of yourself less and finding out your identity in Christ, or humility is. Thinking of yourself less and finding your identity in Christ. And that is how you resist the devil. Do you understand that? You clothe yourself. You tie it on. You literally bring it about yourself. You say, this is grace. This is who I am. And you, you place it on yourself. Every morning you wake up and say, my identity, this is who I am. You put it on. You, you clothe yourself with it. Let it keep you warm. Let it keep the attacks of, the, of Satan at bay. Jesus did it all. He paid it all. And it is well with you because of it. Secondly, anxiety. An incredible foothold of Satan in your life. Guys, I want you to hear this. Anxiety is something that you probably often don't think of as, as a sin. Right? Now let me, before I say that it's a sin, hear me well. I am not saying that if you're a little bit anxious over something, like, oh, you're a little fearful, like, oh, there's, there's fear in there, that, that's a sin. That's not what I'm saying. So don't, don't get caught up in like the semantics of it. Be caught up in the idea behind it. Anxiety in its full form is a sin because anxiety is a disbelief in who God is. Anxiety is an unacceptance of who God is in for you. And anxiety is a fear that's also really a form of cowardice. Anxiety is acting out in, the, in, in a kind of manifested way the fear that is healthy but that can turn to anxiety, which is a sin. Does that make sense? It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Anxiety is always a refusal to see how much God loves you and how much he cares for you. Do you know what it's like to be mistrusted by someone you've done everything for, that you've given everything to, that you've never given a reason to ever mistrust you? This is um, just recently I met a guy and he, uh, at, a, at, a, at another church thing and he kept on saying like, oh, I don't, like, I don't like Lawrence. They talk about me. And I was like, really hurt by that. I was like, why don't you like me? I like people to like me. It hurt my heart. I cried a little. But uh, he actually said to somebody, I don't like Lawrence. And I was like, in my heart, I'm like, okay, what did I do to make you not like me? I kid you not, I promise you this. He says, because he wore shorts. Right? And because I wore shorts, I was like, actually, I didn't wear shorts that time I met you. But he actually thought I wore shorts. Right? I gave him no reason to dislike me. I gave him no reason to not like me. Do you know how much it hurts then for me? I can understand if I give you a reason to not like me, and I have plenty of reasons for you not to like me. Trust me. But I can understand that. If I give you, I have a lot of reasons for you not to like me, but if I give you no reason in our short in interaction together for you not to like me, but you say, oh, I don't like you. I don't trust you. That hurts my heart. Right? Especially if I went overboard. If, if, for example, if I met you and I just said, you know what, everything I have is yours. I'm an open book. I've been honest and real with you this whole time. I'm always, that's it, that's who I am. And you're like, I don't trust that guy. I don't like him. Especially if it's been years or long period of time. Our whole lives we've lived like this. And you're like, I still don't trust that guy. But no reason to. That hurts. That's offensive. But yet here we are with God. And honestly, he's given you everything. He's given you identity. He's called you heir alongside Jesus. He's given you in the same standing of his son. 
He's done everything for you, and you still kind of like, I don't really trust that guy. Do you get that? Do you see how anxiety at heart is a refusal to trust God? And he's given you no reason to not trust him. It says in Romans 8.32 that he who gives his only begotten son, how shall he not together with him freely give all things? In other words, if you're worried and anxious, if you're afraid of what's coming, God looks at you and said, I tore my son to shreds for you. And now you're afraid I'm not going to give you everything else you need? I gave you eternal life. I've given you everything. Worry is a stab at the integrity of God's love. It's not innocent. And so what do you do about anxiety? What do you do about this fear? It tells you actually that we're, it's all linked at, that there's a way here to fight against the sin of anxiety or this foothold of anxiety that the devil uses to attack you. First, it says that if you're worried, you have to humble yourself. In other words, you, you must see that the worry always comes, honestly, from an overconfidence in yourself. I know that sounds weird, but I'll say it like this. Worry often comes from this inflated sense of yourself. Doesn't it? Because you worry because you feel like you have control or you have power. You should at least feel that you should have control or you have power over circumstances. Right? That you, sh- you know what's better. You know how things should be going. You worry that things won't go the way you want it to go as if your way should be the way it should be. Does that make sense? You worry, just like me, I worry that will we have the building space that we need for our church. I worry about that. That is anxiety and that is sin. And I worry about it because as if I know what's better for the church than what God does. You see how that sin is a foothold in my life. That anxiety. But it says here, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You need to be able to say, God, God, I don't know what's coming, but I know you care for me. And though honestly it doesn't look like things are going right the way I want it to go, I know you know what's best. You need to humble yourself. Once again, you need to clothe yourself with humility. This is a discipline. This is, once again, back to how you fight against pride. You fight against anxiety. The way you fight against pride, you clothe yourself with humility. You remind yourself that my God, who sent his son to the cross for me, will he not give everything else? It's to remind yourself that you're not in charge, you're not powerful, and your way is not always the best way. God has the best way in mind. And then it says, secondly, cast your anxiety because he cares for you. Do you know what that literally means, this idea of cast? It comes from this idea of throw once and for all. It's the aorist tense, a Greek aorist word, which is kind of a once for all things. As you're going about your day, it says once for all, just cast your anxiety about, uh, upon him. He says, because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. On the basis of this knowledge that he cares for you, you cast on him. You say, Lord, I'm thinking about your wisdom. I know you love me, and I put it to you. It doesn't mean bring it up again. It literally means throw it upon him. Guys, I, uh, I went fishing one time with a bunch of kind of like seniors in high school. And one of my adult volunteers was with us. And we were on a boat. We were fishing. And this, one of the adult volunteers went back to cast her line. To, to re- she was really excited. She's like, I'm going to catch this fish. And she went back and she, went, she, was, she was planning on throwing it really far. And the hook went right into my shoulder. And I was like, ah, 
And so this idea, that's often what we do is we have this kind of idea of cast and we think, we, oh, I'm going to cast it upon Jesus. But what happens, it snags and we hold on to it or it snags and we remember or we have this anxiety that kind of snags upon us. Instead of casting it, we kind of, I'm going to cast, I'm going to go far, but we stop and we hold back, Right? It's literally this idea that you have to cast it all. You have to give it all to him. But why? Because he cares for you. It's a mistrust of his love when we don't cast it upon him. You need to cast your sorrows upon him. When you're really scared, when you're really anxious, when you're under a load of care, one of the things that you often think about is often your own guilt in this. Am I being punished? Did I deserve this? And his gracious say, no, this is not punishment. The Lord is doing what he does. Do you believe that? For those of you who are parents in this room, can I tell you that the, the sin of anxiety is so real, isn't it? Right? It's, it's real in my heart. You know, whether it's this anxiety that one day Josiah, who's getting so stinking fast, We'll just run into the street and get hit by a car. It's true. It's a real worry for me because that kid just loves to run, and he loves to run to the most dangerous places right away. That's just, I don't know what it is. He's like, he's got the radar for it. He's like, ooh, danger. <laughs> and it's a real worry. It's a real anxiety for me. You know what else is one? And I'll just be real with you guys. Is my son was um, diagnosed with autism. And for me, one of the anxieties that I have is what is his life going to look like? Right? I don't know. Could look like anything, but I just, whatever it may be, I don't know what it's going to look like. And that is anxious for me. That is where Satan gets a foothold in me. He comes in and says, well, Lawrence, maybe, you know, maybe it's a sin in your life. Maybe you caused Josiah to have this. That's a lie, but man, because I'm anxious about it, his lies become more real right? That's that foothold that I've given Satan because I'm anxious about my son's future, because I'm anxious about him. That, man, that lie comes in, and I know it's a lie, but man, when I'm anxious about it, that foothold becomes so real in my own heart, and he's like, oh, I got this now, right? So what do I do with that anxiety? What do I do with that anxiety over my son's future and my son's life and what he's going to be? And stop, and what do I have to do first? I have to stop, and I have to humble myself and say, I am not in charge, I have to stop and put on this humility, this put on this identity that, you know what, I don't, I'm not God and God is good. He cares for us. I have to put on this identity that says my, my God has purchased everything I need, everything my son needs, that he is, can be known and he can be loved and he can have purpose and what else is important in life. I have to remind myself, I have to put that on myself. And then I have to say, okay, after that's on, I need to say, okay, God, I'm just going to cast it on you. Because it's too heavy for me. Because once I remind myself that I'm not God, then I can say, okay, then if I'm not God, then you are God. Okay, then that, you, you, it belongs to you. I, I just I don't have to carry it anymore. You have a better plan. Because you care for me. This idea... 
guys, I want you to understand is of sin. And so many often, so often we talk about the idea of sin in kind of the southern western church. Is this idea of, okay, tell me what sin is and how do I stay away from it. Guys, it's not about focusing on sin. It's about focusing on the truth of the promise of God. Because what is sin? Sin is just the opposite of God. Sin is contrary to God's nature. Right? And so what sin is then is not believing in who truly God is and what he's done. Do you get that? And so what we're doing is that when, we, when we're allowing anxiety this foothold, when we're allowing pride this foothold, and allowing the devil to attack and have this foothold in us, what we're doing is forgetting the promises of God, not believing the promises of God. So how do we, do, how do we fight against, how do we resist? We put on the promises of God, and we cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. With my son, I have to believe that my God knows him better than I do. And I believe that his plan is fuller and bigger than anything that I could ever accomplish. And even if my son ends up in whatever circumstance he ends up, I choose to believe that my God's plan for his glory is worth more than anything else. I have to cast my cares upon God because he cares for us. Guys, how do we resist the devil? How do we fight against this devouring, roaring lion that can swallow us up with one gulp as we remember the power of the truth of the gospel of grace? We do not let the footholds of sin into our lives. Amen? Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up in a second as I say a word of prayer. But there are so many of us who carry anxiety, who carry this foothold, this, this, this avenue, this, this pathway of sin into our own hearts. And there's so many of us who are just holding on and we don't know how to cast it upon him. It's once for all throwing it to one who goes. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to practice that discipline because it's not a simple thing all the time. So what's going to happen is I'm going to invite the band to come up in a second as I'm praying. And they're going to lead us in this first song. And this first song is the one that I want us to remember the promise of. This first song is a song called, It Is Well With My Soul. The guy who wrote it, actually, is a guy named Horatio Spafford. And Horatio's wife and his children were on an ocean liner going across the Atlantic. And they hit an iceberg. And they began to sink. His wife got the four children around her and they sat down and began to pray. Unfortunately, they went down and all the children drowned. But the wife did not. She was picked up unconscious, floating on a log or something, and she was taken to the hospital. She there wired her husband, and all she said in the telegram was, saved alone. When they got together, they sat down as Christians and processed it as Christians. And as a result, he wrote what God showed him. The chorus of the hymn, it is well with my soul. He said, when peace like a river attendeth my way. He said, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. In the midst of deepest loss, he cast his anxieties upon God. As we sing that song, may that truth of the words of it is well with my soul 
Help you to cast all your anxieties as you clothe yourself with the truth of the gospel. May we cast all our anxieties upon him. Let's pray. God, oh, this thought, God, this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and that we bear it no more. God, thank you that it is well with us. God, that our truth, our identity is that you are, we are forgiven, we are known, we are loved, and we are called to purpose. God, that you have called us co-heirs along Jesus, that we are yours, and it is well with our souls. May we clothe ourselves with that truth, our, our identity, who our, our place, our standing in you, so that we may cast our anxieties upon you because you care for us. Help us to cast it, help us to walk in these disciplines so that we can resist the attacks of the devil that seeks its foothold in us through pride and anxiety. In Jesus' name, amen.